Thank you, Father, for bringing us here by your grace. I pray that the Holy Spirit tonight will help your people understand the depths of who you are. I pray that when we leave this evening that we will better apprehend who you are, not comprehend who you are, for we cannot do that, but apprehend who you are in order that we may worship you rightfully and truthfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Tonight, just like any other uh, night, I'm going to challenge your thinking and I want to I want I want you to leave tonight and not say that, man, there's a lot of things that I I know about God or there's a lot of things that I think I know about God. And God is so much bigger than I thought I knew. Um, But I want you to leave tonight with the understanding that the things that you know about God are only the things that God has revealed to you, but also the things that we do know about God. We worship God in light of that. Okay, so so strap on your seatbelts and and let's let's think together. As Pastor likes to say, we we um, we we uh, we paddle our boats to to the deep ends of the sea. Well, to, to this evening, we're going to not necessarily paddle our boats to the sea, but we're going to climb Mount Everest. And, and quickly you will find that the atmosphere and the altitude is very, very thin. Um, but that's okay. God is, God is with us. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1, of God and the Holy Trinity. And mind you guys, if you don't get everything that's on the screen, I will email you all of my notes. So don't necessarily focus on what's on the screen. Just get a handle of what I'm saying, okay, too. All right? Um, I will send you everything, though, when it's all done. But chapter 2 of paragraph 1 of God and the Holy Trinity, our confession says this. The Lord our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, without body, parts, or passions, um, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, um, approach onto, who is immutable in men's eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and righteous will. For his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forever forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and most, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's a lot, right? In chapter 2 of our confession, the framers of our confession wanted to lay out a doctrine of God that best summarizes what the Bible says about God, while also being consistent with what the early church, how the early church spoke about God. They spoke about the aseity of God, right? You learned about that two weeks ago from Pastor Antonio. They spoke about the simplicity of God and the impassibility of God. You'll learn about that in the next few weeks, Lord willing. Uh, They upheld God as eternal and immense. But there's one thing about God that the writers of our confession really wanted us to get. They, They really wanted us to get a handle on. And it's this statement here. God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. Again, listen to the words of our confession. The Lord our God is but one living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection. And here's the first confession of divine incomprehensibility, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. I take it that none of you can understand or comprehend the essence of God. We can dissect our essence, right, our humanity. We can know our humanity to some degree, but none of us can even attempt to understand the essence of God or the godness of God. That's the first confession. That's the first confession of divine incomprehensibility. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only dwelt who only have immortality. And here's the second confession of, in, of divine incomprehensibility. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach onto. Their second affirmation of divine incomprehensibility. 
who is immutable, immense, eternal. And if you didn't get it those first two times, here's the second time. Here's the third time. Incomprehensible. So three times the writers of our confession hit us with, with God is incomprehensible. Um, it seems, and it does seem like the writers of our confession, they wanted to lay out a biblical doctrine of who God is, a biblical teaching of who God is, while at the same time reminding us that our statement about God doesn't encompass all that God is. That's why they, that's why they, they hit us three times with divine incomprehensibility. You know, it's almost as if they said a statement and then they said, but remember, he's incomprehensible. He's incomprehensible. They say another statement, but he's incomprehensible. And then another one, he's incomprehensible. They wanted us. They wanted to make sure that what we say about God doesn't contain God, doesn't encompass, doesn't sum God up. Right. Herman Bavink said mystery is the lifeblood of all dogmatics. Mystery is the lifeblood of of all dogmatics, he put his picture up, of all dogmatics. Um, that is to say that mystery is the lifeblood of all of our teachings about God, right? And friends, this is how we, this is how we enter. This is how we begin the study of God. This is how we enter the study of God. This is how we enter theology proper. One of the first steps of doing theology is understanding, and hear me, that you don't comprehend. That's the first step of doing theology is understanding that you do not comprehend. Now, I'm going to unpack that word comprehend, but, but we don't comprehend. We approach the study of the divine knowing that from the very start of our labors, we are faced with the incomprehensible one. We are faced, we are faced, face to face with the incomprehensible one. We are faced with mystery. And friends, when we talk about mystery and we are faced with mystery, it's not as if mystery is the, the leftover part of our understanding of God. Like everything, after everything we know about God, then mystery comes and it kicks in. It doesn't work that way. But the entirety of our study of God is shrouded in mystery. Now, that's not to say that there's some sort of hidden mysteries about God that we have yet to learn, but it is to say that we approach the doctrine of God from the vantage point of we don't fully comprehend with, with, with the knowledge that we put in our minds and with the words that our mouths speak. That's what we mean by mystery. We don't comprehend what we are saying, even what, what, even what we are saying, not the things that we, that we don't know, but in the things that we do know, we don't comprehend that there's a beyondness to the depths of who God is, that whatever we say about God, and we do say many things about God, right? And if they are all biblical and if they are all right, but what, whatever we say about God, we must always come back to the essential truth, this essential truth, that God is always deeper than our deepest thought of him. That's what we come back to. Whatever we say about God, and, and if, you do, if you say something biblical, then, then it's true. And if it's, and if it's orthodox, then it's true. But you must remember that whatever I'm saying doesn't contain God. My, my words don't sum God up. You guys catch what I'm saying there? Okay. <clears throat> Nothing that we say about God fully gets around him. Nothing that we say about God fully gets around him. That doesn't mean that we don't know nothing about God. However, our knowing doesn't sum God up. Mind you, why can't our knowing, why can't our words sum God up? Because we are finite and he is infinite. And the infinite doesn't have a sum, right? That's why we don't sum God up. There's no sum to the infinite. We begin our study of God realizing that God is incomprehensible, not by the things that we don't know about God, but by the things that we do know about God, the knowledge that we do have of God surpasses even our own understanding. Right. And there's a lot of ways and there's a lot of things that we say about God that transcend even our own thinking. I mean, think about the things that you say about God. Think about the being of God. God is one yet eternally exists in three persons. The Bible commands us to baptize in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't comprehend that, right? But, but I know that if I, but if I don't affirm that, then I'm clearly going against Scripture. Oh, where about, Pastor talked about um, 
last week about last Lord's Day about time and eternity. We say God is eternal, but none of us, none of us can give a proper definition of what eternally of what eternal really is. Right. So we say a lot of things about God that are true. However, the words that we say or the things that we say about God transcend the, our thinking and, and what we are actually saying. Um, and many of the great minds in the past in the in the past understood the centrality of confessing God as incomprehensible. I'm going to read you one quote from or a couple of quotes, but one what, what might be my one of my favorite quotes from Augustine. He says, what are you then, my God? What are you, I ask, but the Lord God? For who else is the Lord except the Lord? Or who is God if not our God? You are most high, excellent, most powerful, omnipotent, supremely merciful and supremely just, most hidden, yet intimately present, infinitely beautiful and infinitely strong, steadfast, yet elusive, unchanging yourself, though you control the change in all things. Never new, never old, renewing all things, you yet wearing down the proud, though they know it not. Ever active, ever at rest, gathering while knowing no need, supporting and filling and guarding, creating and nurturing and perfecting, seeking, although you lack nothing. You love without frenzy. You are jealous yet secure. You regret without sadness. You grow angry yet remain tranquil. You alter your works, but never your plan. You take back, but you you take back what you find, although you never lost it. You never are in need, yet you rejoice in your gains. You allow us to pay you more than you demand. And so you become our debtor. Yet which of us possesses anything that does not belong already to you? You owe us nothing. And hear this, yet you pay your debts. You write off your debts to you, yet you lose nothing thereby. And that's a lot, right? I mean, that's something that we, we can stop there and we can say, oh, we said a lot about God and we can pat ourselves on the back. Right. Hear what he says here. After saying all that, what have we said? <laughs> After saying all of that, what have we said? My God, my life, my holy sweetness. Hear this. But what does what does anyone who speaks of you really say? Yet woe betile those who fail to speak while the chatterboxes go on and say nothing. Those who speak a lot and think they know a lot about God are actually chatterboxes. However, we do have to say something about God for us to not to, for us to not remain silent. However, the things that we do know about God, what have we really said about God? It's not as if the things that we said about God are not true, but those things that we said about God don't contain or encompass or sum God up. Athanasius said, God transcends all being and all human comprehension. John of Damascus said, for what is the thought of God is truer than what is said and his being is truer than what is thought. If we nevertheless insist on saying something about him, our language is not adequate, but only serves to enable us to say something. Our language of God is it's not that inadequate to say to to comprehend God, but we have to speak about God. We have to say something because we can't keep silent because God has revealed himself to us. And to think of a being who surpasses all else. Zwingli wrote, and hear this, this is kind of funny. We know, we know more about the nature of God than beetles know about the nature of humans. Yeah, I, I take, none of us know the nature of God. None of us can comprehend the nature of God, right? Well, I think that's true. I mean, beetles can't comprehend our humanity, right? Augustine said, and I love this, if you comprehend God, it is not God who you comprehend. If you think you have a handle on God, it is not God who you have a handle on. As you can see, all affirm that God is infinite, that infinitely surpasses our understanding, imagination, and language. Again, that's not to say that we don't know God, for he has revealed himself to us through special and general revelation. However, we must remember that God transcends our words, God transcends our thoughts, and God even transcends our praise. Our praise, our praise doesn't, our praise, though, when we praise God, we are not, don't think that you are doing adequate justice in who God is. God is always so much more than your highest praise of him. Again, scripture has given us the privilege to say many true things about God. However, in our deepest and highest thoughts of God, there has to be an abiding conviction that God is always so much more. 
He's always so much more than what my thoughts uh, perceive of him and what my words are actually saying. So what I want to do tonight is lay out the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility. And I have two points um, that will help us. The first is the biblical witness to divine incomprehensibility. And the second is the practical application of divine incomprehensibility. Um, one thing you have to know is divine incomprehensibility is not an attribute of God. Okay? Divine, divine incomprehensibility is, when we talk about that, we're talking about the being of God, who he is. Mind you, all of God's attributes are who he is. They all are identical to his essence, but we'll talk about that um, eventually. Let's look at the biblical witness to divine incomprehensibility of the first point. Um, before, we, before we look at a few scriptures, I think it's going to be helpful if we answer, what does it mean to say that God is incomprehensible? What does that mean, okay? What does it mean to say that God is incomprehensible? So let's just break down this, the word. To prehend a thing, to prehend a thing is to grab hold of a thing. You can think of a paperclip. You know, when, when you, the paperclip grabs hold of the paper. Doesn't necessarily contain the paper because there's, there's a leftover paper, Right? But it doesn't. But it does grab and 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 um, and um, apprehend the paper. So when we say when we say apprehend, and you've been hearing that a lot, we say that we apprehend God. We don't comprehend God. When we apprehend a thing, that is to say that you grab hold of a thing. When we app- when we apprehend, we grab hold of a thing. The opposite of apprehend is comprehend. So when we comprehend a thing, that is to say that you contain a thing. To apprehend is to lay hold of it, to grab it, but to comprehend is to contain it. Does that make sense? So as an example, the officer might apprehend the suspect by arresting him, right? But the officer hasn't, hasn't comprehended the suspect until the suspect is locked behind bars and is, you know, circled around walls, right? So until the officer puts that suspect behind bars and throws the key away, the officer has not yet comprehended the suspect. He's only apprehended the suspect because the suspect can get away. Um, Mind you, you can get away in jail too. I've seen saucing redemption and can be done. So, um, but when we say, when we say apprehend and comprehend, these are physics terms, but we borrow them to make them epistemological terms. Remember, Pastor spoke about Pastor Antonio spoke about that two weeks ago. Epistemology, the study of knowledge, right? Um, so, when we say we apprehend a thing, when we say we apprehend God, what we mean is we know something about God. We know something about God. To, but when we say we can't comprehend God, that means that we can't fully, completely, exhaustively know God. Does that make sense? What we say about God is we apprehend who he is. We do not comprehend who he is. We can say also that we, that we know something about God, but we can't fully wrap our minds around God. Okay? Again, that's not to say that we don't know anything about God. However, in our knowing, we don't comprehend. In our knowing God, we do not comprehend God. Again, okay, now let's look at a, a few verses that speak to this doctrine. Uh, first, let's look at the story of Job. Uh, Job, as you know, and if you can turn to Job chapter 11, Job chapter 11. But as you know, Job, or if you don't know, Job is a story of a righteous man, a righteous man of God who who was allowed to be tempted by Satan. And everything is taken away from Job. Um, and by God, by by Satan tempting God, Satan th- or tempting Job, um, Satan thought that Job would turn away from God. But in reality, Job's faith in God only grew stronger. And I would say that one of the reasons why Job's faith grew so strong in God is because of God's incomprehensibility. Because, because God is so far beyond what's happening right, right now in my life, and he's so far beyond who I think he is, that yes, he's even in the midst of my, my struggles, he is working all things together for his glory and for my good. Okay, so chapter, chapter 11, if you're there. Chapter 11, um, verse 7 through 9. After Job has been pleading with God to give him answers of why so many bad things are happening in his life, 
Job's friend Zophar says this. Can you find out the deep things of God? It's a rhetorical question. No. Can you find out the limit to, of the Almighty? As if there's a limit to the Almighty, right? It is higher than heaven. Can you do it? Deeper than Sheol, can you know it? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Zophar describes God as someone who is too high, too deep, too long, and too wide to grasp. In other words, what Zophar is saying is God exceeds our greatest and deepest thought of him. In fact, God even exceeds the earth, the sea, the deepest parts of the grave. Matter of fact, he even exceeds the heavens of the heaven. The deep things of God are, and here's a word, unmeasurable. The deep things of God are unmeasurable. The deep things of God are unmeasurable. They are higher than the heavens and deeper than Sheol. But higher than the heavens? Let's just, let's just think about that. Think about the mysteriousness of heaven. You know? Heaven is so mysterious that people make up stories and they say that they went to heaven. But, but think about the mysteriousness of heaven. And sure, God has revealed to us some things about heaven, but there is a mysteriousness when we consider what heaven is and what heaven is like. And mind you, friends, heaven is not the place that you arrive at once you have um, left space, as I thought. You know, just as when you leave Earth, where do you reach? You reach the solar system, space. And then you go up a little bit more higher. And as soon as you get to that end point of space, then you're in heaven. Think about just how high heaven is then. We don't even necessarily know how high space is, the length of space and the width of it. But, he said, but Zophar says God's, the deep things of God are as high as the heavens. If they are higher, actually. And, and when we think about the mysteriousness of heaven, the word says that the deep things of God are more mysterious than that. That's not to say that the deep things of God are like a mystery novel and one day we'll find out all the things about God at the end. But mystery in the sense of unable to wrap our minds around. That's what, that's what, that's what biblical mystery is. Unable to wrap our minds around. Not something that we don't know, right? But something that we can't fully wrap our minds around. Here Zophar is, and hear this, here Zophar is, is setting us apart from God. He's, he's showing that God is God and you are a creature. God is higher than the highest place imaginable, heaven. I can't imagine any other place higher than heaven. Deeper than the deepest place, shoal. Longer than the widest place, earth. And wider than the widest place, the sea. God is indeed too high, too deep, too long, and too wide to grasp. Uh, the the uh, medievals had a saying, the finite can't comprehend the infinite. The finite can't comprehend the infinite. They can't, they can't measure the infinite. Now let's turn to Job chapter 36. Job chapter 36. Um, in Job chapter 20, 36, verse 26, Elihu says this. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. Let's just stop there. <laughs> Elihu says God is great, but we know him not. I just said something about God, but I know him not. Right? But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that what I said about God is not true. It's just what I just said about God doesn't encompass all that God is. That makes sense? The number of his years is unsearchable. Again, the number, we, we talked about God being unmeasurable. The number of his years are unsearchable. We talked last Lord's Day about time, right? The number of his years are unsearchable, which means that God's life is not computable. God's life is not computable. In other words, you can't calculate his years. You can't calculate God's years. Now, when, when Elihu says uh, the number of, of his years are unsearchable, that doesn't mean that God is very old, right? That he's, that he's ancient, that he has gray hair. And, and, and uh, if you know Lord of the Rings, he looks like um, Gandalf. You know, he's really, 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 really old, right? That's not what Elihu's saying. We learned last Lord's Day from Pastor Antonio that that God is not bound to time like we are. We are bound to time, but God is not bound to time. Why? Because God is eternal. 
So if God is eternal, then God isn't old and God isn't young. God doesn't grow older and wiser like us, nor does he stay forever young like we wish we all did, right? God doesn't pass years or clock time like we do. We measure our years by looking at our age. Man, and some of us don't even have to look at our age. We can just look at our hands and necks and all that, right? But we know by our physical being how much time has passed. That doesn't happen with God because there's no time that passes in God because God is outside of time. He is eternal. God's years are not measurable. And why are... I mean, God's years are not are, are God's years are not measurable, not because God is eternal necessarily. OK, it's, it's that's not the primary reason. I think the primary reason of why God's years are not measurable is because there aren't any years to measure. There's nothing there. So what are you going to measure? When the Bible says that God is the alpha and omega, that doesn't mean that God is an alpha. Then he's on his way to be an omega. Right. That he doesn't have a starting point and then he's going through time and he will have an end point sometime. But it's a condescending term that describes the eternal God whose years are unsearchable. Right. We cannot put a limit or a measure to God's years. Okay. again, God doesn't have a past, nor does he have a future. And let me say this, there's great implications because if you say that God has a past and God has a future and that God is creaturely, he is in time like us, then what you are saying is that God can change in his being. Why? Because time is the measurement of change. Motion is the measurement of change. And if God can change, then God is creaturely, he is no longer God. So when we say God is eternal, we're not just saying that because it sounds nice or because it sounds true, but there's great truth in that, and there's grave implications if you get it wrong. God doesn't change, right? He's not creaturely like us. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here, God, again, demonstrating the distinction that exists between the creator and the creature. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. God's ways, his decrees, and you've been hearing decrees a lot. Decrees refer to God's purpose or determination with respect to all that comes to pass. Okay? So when we say God ordains, we, the, the technical term for that is God decrees. God decrees all things from eternity past, in eternity past. His decrees and how he does things are not the way we do things, right? So when, when we think about, when we be talking about Genesis, when we think about Genesis, when it says in the beginning God created, it's not as if God took out some tools and then he began to create, or he saw a blank canvas and he said, hmm, what can I do with this canvas? Now let me create something. Or even with us, we make decrees, right? We, we want to will something to happen. When we set a plan in motion, what do we have to do? We have to lay out the plan. We have to go to, get all, we have to, go to the store. We have to get our tools. But until we put the tools to work, our plan never comes into existence, right? However, with God, the sheer act of God willing, it comes into existence. If God says it, it happens, Right? There is a beyondness to how we operate and how God operates. Herman Boving said the distance between God and us is the gulf between infinite and finite, between eternity and time, between being and becoming, which is that's big, between the all and the nothing. I think he said there we we derive all of our being from him. Right. So if 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 God um, is not the first cause of us, then we are not in existence. Existence. There is a wide gap, a great and wide gap, gulf, that exists between us and God. And mind you, friends, there will always, bolded letters, underlined letters, there will, be, there will always be a great gulf that exists between you and God. Always. Even in heaven. Even in heaven. And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that is not a bad thing. Creatureliness is not a bad thing. When God saves us, he doesn't save us from our creatureliness. He doesn't save us from our finitude. He saves us from being hostile enemies 
That's what happens when God saves us. Salvation is not about overcoming the creator-creature distinction. It's about overcoming the holy God-sinner distinction. That's, that's what God does. Reconciliation is not about now. Finally now we have the ability to, 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 um, to figure God out. No, rather, reconciliation is about now we have the ability to call God Holy Father. To learn and grow about the one who can't be put into a figure. That's what this is all, that's what this is all about. And, and, and praise God for that creator-creature distinction, right? God's ways are incomprehensible. Psalm chapter 139, verse 1 through 5 um, I won't comment on this, but, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with my thoughts. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. To, for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I'm itching at the bones to speak on this, but, but you get the, you get the drift. Psalm 90 verse 11, one of the most terrifying scriptures in all of the Bible. Hear this. Who considers the power of your anger? Who knows the power of your anger and hear this and your wrath according to the fear of you. The psalmist just said, who understands your wrath? We know something about God's wrath and it's not good, but there is a beyondness. There is an incomprehensibility to God's wrath and to his anger. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Now, I like how the NIV puts it. And hear this, guys. This is, this is big and good, I, I think. Um, the NIV puts it this way. His greatness, no one can fathom. His greatness, no one can fathom. Now, let's just break down real quick the word fathom. When you fathom something, you, you drop a measuring line off the end of your ship until that weight hits the bottom, right? So you, you drop a measuring line off the ship until, until you um, feel and, and you measure that the, the anchor has hit the bottom of the sea into some sort of solid substance. And when you haul that line in, you can measure, you can measure the line, and once you have done that, you have fathomed the water. Okay? You have measured the line. You have fathomed the water. In other words, you have fathomed the waters of depth. Now, follow me here. When we, when we drop the line of our anchor into the deep sea of God, into the doctrine of God, when we drop our anchor, the difference between God and the deep waters of the sea is there's no bottom to the deep things of God. You're, when you drop your line off, off the boat into the sea, your line, your anchor is going to hit eventually. Your, your anchor will never hit once you drop your line off the boat into the deep things of God. When we drop our line into the depths of the Almighty, it will never reach its destination. Why? Because it has no destination. There is no destination. It is not as if our line is too short, but there is no limit or measure to the depth of who God is. It's not as if we, uh, it's not as if we have uh, dropped enough intellectual line on God. We haven't dropped enough. Like we don't know enough about God and we have to study 23 out of the 24 hours of the day to know God. And we have to read all of this theology proper just to know God. And once we do that, then we will know God. Friends, you can study from now until you get to heaven until the new heavens and the new earth. And you will never fathom the deep waters of who God is ever. As we grow in the knowledge of God, it is not as if we are slowly diminishing or overcoming and chipping away his incomprehensibility. That's not how it works. As if the more I know about God, I'm slowly chipping away of his incomprehensibility. It's never going to happen. God will always be incomprehensible, but, and that's okay. As we learned from Pastor Antonio last week, that's the joy of eternity, is it not? The study of God and, 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 and knowing that I will, I will never reach the height, of who, the height of who he is. That's the joy of eternity, knowing God for, uh, for who he is and seeing a greater picture of who he is without my sin. When, when we say that in heaven, 
um, we're going to know all things. And mind you, I don't, I can't even quote a scripture that even says that word for word. But when we say that we will know all things, it's not we're going to know every single thing that God knows, but we will know without blemish. We will know without the sands in our eyes. We will know without sin. We will know God clearly, and we will see him for, how, for who he is. The study of God will be a never-ending journey um, in the Christian walk. Again, God is unfathomable. Um, let's look at another text of Scripture, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Solomon is leading the people in uh, dedicating in, the, in this dedication of God's temple. And uh, Solomon's temple, if you don't know, Solomon's temple is the most elaborate beautiful, awe-inspiring temple that the people have ever seen. I mean, if you think about Solomon's temple, I think the only thing that rivaled Solomon's temple in terms of sheer grandeur was maybe the pyramids. But when we get, when we get down to the details of Solomon's temple, it doesn't even come close. Solomon is praying at this dedication, and he stops. He stops during this ceremony, and he just, he ponders of what's really happening right now. He sees this temple, he's dedicating it to the Lord, and then he stops and he says, wait a minute. He says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built what Solomon is saying is this temple is indeed a, 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 a very unique, special dwelling place of God. However, we must not confuse this temple as containing God. Yes, it's a special dwelling place of God, but this temple, as beautiful as it is, as grand as it is, as, be- as all that, it does not contain God. It does not comprehend God. No place on earth comprehends God and contains God. And, and he takes it a step further. Not even heaven contains God. Not even heaven contains God. Now, it is not as if God, you know, um, isn't contained on the earth, but he's all there in heaven, right? That's not how it works. Heaven doesn't contain God because Heaven is on the creaturely side of the creator-creature distinction. Heaven is finite. Heaven is creaturely. Those seraphs, those angels, they're all finite. God's manifested presence in heaven does not contain him. It doesn't exhaust him. The glory of of the heavenly throne, hear this, even the glory of the heavenly throne room of God Yes, it's the highest manifestation of God's glory, but however, it is the highest manifestation of glory in creaturely form. It is not the full display of God's glory. God's glory and God's being cannot be contained. I I take it right now at this point, you guys are understanding that you are a creature and and he is God. I think we're making good progress at that. Um, and that's one of my hopes. Heaven doesn't put a limit on God, and that's Solomon's point. Heaven doesn't put a limit on God. Earth doesn't put a limit on God. Heaven and earth doesn't contain God. Even in the heavens of the heaven, God isn't contained. The being of God exceeds even the highest form of his special dwelling place, heaven. The last two texts, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul speaking of the greatness of God's love so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to, and hear this, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's, he's exhorting these, these Ephesian Christians to, to, to know the love of Christ, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Here Paul affirms the incomprehensibility of God's love. Paul prays that these Christians will understand how great God's love is, you know, how wide and long and, 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 and high and deep it is. Yet, in all of that, he realizes that they'll never be able to understand the full limits, the full measure of the greatness of God's love. Why? Because the greatness of God love, God's love surpasses our finite knowledge. 
That doesn't mean that we can't know something about God's love. That means that even in your knowing, it is surpassing, it is transcending your thoughts and your words. Finitude will simply not allow us to think infinite thoughts. Our creatureliness will not allow us to think infinite creator thoughts. doesn't mean that you can't know anything about the creator, but you can't know the creator as the creator knows the creator. Friends, you can have thoughts that tr- you can't have thoughts that transcend who you are. You are an infinite being, therefore your ability to think, or you are a finite being, and your ability to think is finite. Again, that doesn't mean that you can't know the infinite, but it does mean that you can't know the infinite infinitely. That's what that means. In order for you to have an infinite and my why can't you have why can't you know the infinite infinitely? In order for you to have an infinite thought about God, it would require for you to be God. That's why you can't. You can't transcend who you are. You are finite, and you will never have an infinite thought about God because you are not God. You'll have to graduate from creature to God in order for that to happen. And that's why I said creatureliness is okay. Jesus doesn't come to save us from being creatures. He comes to save us, saves us from being sinners. Okay? Um, again, this also doesn't mean that the divine incomprehensibility starts to kick in when your knowledge of God ends, you know? So the things I know about God are good, but then when I, when I no longer can think things, thoughts about God, and when I can no longer say proper things about God, that's when divine incomprehensibility steps in. That's when the unknown, that's when the unknowability of God steps in. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. Divine incomprehensibility refers to the entirety of what you know about God and what you don't know about God. So to close this point, and I want to, I want to really emphasize this, 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 what I'm going to say next is I've been saying a lot about we know God, yet we, yet we don't know God, um, infinitely. We don't know, we don't comprehend God. That doesn't mean, though, and I'm not trying to do away with the great love and mercy and grace that God has shown to us, that he has stooped down to our level to reveal himself to us. That, that's, that's the amazing thing. You know, it, it is not as if God was saying, well, they're not going to know me fully, so why even reveal myself to them? You know, but think about the grace and the love of God that he has for us to reveal himself in a special way that we may know him truly for who he is. You know, Stephen Charnock says that though we cannot comprehend God for, uh, for who he is in and of himself, we cannot fancy him to be what he is not. And I think that's what happens a lot in Christianity. We, Because we cannot fully comprehend God, we try to put God in a box and we try to make God fit into our own comprehension. You know? And we have to always understand that God is incomprehensible. However, that doesn't mean that he has not revealed himself to us through his word and through a general revelation. Uh, let's look at the last or the second point, which is the last point is the practical application of divine incomprehensibility. Um, I, when we say divine incomprehensibility, we're not just saying that because, like I said, it sounds good. And we're not just saying that because it is true, but we're saying that because there's a lot of implications that arise if we deny that God is incomprehensible. There's a lot of implications that arise. If we, if we lose the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility, there's a lot at stake, a whole lot at stake. Um, number one, if we lose divine incomprehensibility, if we lose this doctrine, if we don't get this down into you know, the fiber of our, our bones, then we run the risk of thinking that God is easily captured by the statements that we make of him. This means that if God is able to be comprehended, then it means that we can contain him, that we can hold God in our minds. And, and, and even worse, that God can even be contained by the words that we speak. Scripture is clear that God cannot be contained. Not even the heavens can contain God. 
Earth can't contain God. He's unmeasurable. He, he cannot be comprehended. We, um, when Scripture says that we are to love the Lord with all our minds, it doesn't mean that we may seek to contain God with our minds. We love the Lord with all our minds, but it doesn't mean that we pursue God in order that we may contain him in our minds and hold him in our thoughts and with the words that we speak. If God is easily captured by the statements we make, then we can approach God on our own terms. And we can say to God anything that we want to say. And friends, we ought to be careful when choosing, when we approach the divine, we ought to be careful in choosing which words we say to him. Example, Job. Job thought that his mind and his words could easily comprehend God's dealings with him. And he quickly found out that God's ways are unsearchable and his being is incomprehensible. He thought that he could contain God. But it doesn't work that way. And if you read the rest of the story of Job, God puts Job on the hot seat and Job uh, repents into dust and ashes. Number two, if God... If, if God is not incomprehensible, then we lose the creature-creator distinction. If God is not incomprehensible, then we lose the creator-creature distinction. And I think this is, this is big. If, if we can comprehend God, then in what way is God's knowledge higher than ours? If we can comprehend God, in what way is God's knowledge higher than ours? If we comprehend God, then in what ways is God distinct from us? If we comprehend God, then humanity and the Almighty are on an even playing field. That's what happens if we lose divine comprehensibility. If we comprehend God, then... God's word is just subjective. It's just his own story. It's just his opinion. But since I comprehend God, that means that my knowledge and God's knowledge are on the same playing field. They're on par. So why don't I, why don't I create my own Bible? Because my knowledge is similar to God's. Why don't I make, my, make, my, uh, make people bow down to me? Better yet, why don't I share the throne with God? Friends, if we lose the creator-creature distinction, then we are right back into the story of the garden. That's what happens. What was, the tempta- what was the temptation of Adam and Eve? That they could attain a knowledge that was on par with God. If we lose the finite comprehensibility, then we lose the creator-creature distinction. And then we say that we are like God. They thought, Adam and Eve thought that they could eliminate the creator-creature distinction. And a little where they, they were wrong. Um, this leads to the last risk. If we lose divine comprehensibility, then we ultimately fall into idolatry. If we lose divine comprehensibility, then we fall into idolatry. Simply put, if we can comprehend God, then we are just like God. Therefore, we should be God as well. That we should not share the throne with God, but we should be on equal thrones with God. Okay? Okay, so how do we apply all this? What do we do after hearing all of this? I'm pretty sure your, your hamsters have dropped off the, the, the wheel. Um, you understand the creator-creature distinction. You understand that God is far beyond our thoughts, that everything we say about God doesn't encompass God, doesn't, doesn't capture God in a one-to-one ratio, doesn't comprehend God. What do we do? We worship. That's what we do. After all that's been said, we worship God. Because we can never know God fully, we should ex- that should exhort us. That should push us to worship him. Now, some might say, well, what's the point? If I'm never going to master this, then why even study the doctrine of God? Why even study God? Why even learn about God? Friends, we can't treat God like any other field of knowing. He's not like the arts and sciences or like math or whatever, you know? God isn't that sort of being that we can come to and we can say that either we're going to master this or we're not going to learn it at all. Friends, you will never get a PhD in theology proper. You will never get a PhD in knowing God. If anything, you can get a PhD in what God is not. You can get a PhD in how to speak about God in ways that are true, but you can never have a PhD in who God is fully. This challenges us, though. 
the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility challenges us. And it challenges us to lower our pride, to lower our ego, that will we worship a God that is not captured by our thoughts, words, and praise? Will you worship that God? Is he worthy for you to be wor- for for you to worship him, and indeed he is. Mind you, he's not worthy to be worshipped because he's incomprehensible, right? He's worthy to be worshipped because he's intrinsically worthy, right? The mystery of God compels us to worship God. Nothing should motivate true Christian worship more than the majestic mystery of God. In Scripture, mystery and incomprehensibility always always prompt us to doxology and adoration to God. And we can worship God truthfully and rightfully because he has revealed himself to us. And thank God for that. Let us close with the words from the Apostle Paul. After Paul has given us a mountain of theology from God's sovereignty and salvation to now this one olive tree that God has made, he says this, Romans 11, 33 through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments? There's no measure to your judgments. And how inscrutable are your ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time. I pray that we leave this time with a greater appreciation of your incomprehensibility. and But also, let us adore, let us worship you, for you have revealed yourself to us. And you have given us your spirit to enlighten the word into our hearts, to our minds, and to our souls. Let this not stop us from knowing who you are. But let this catapult us, let, let this catapult us to learn more about who you are. But always remembering that you are always so much more than what knowledge I can put in my mind and what words my mouth speak. We praise you and we glorify you this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.